Welcome to the Ocean Hills Podcast. Our hope is that today's message would help you connect more deeply with God and with others. If you would like more information on what is happening in the Ocean Hills community, check out our website at oceanhills.org or download the Ocean Hills app. If you are encouraged by our ministry and would like to partner with us financially, you can give through your mobile device by texting Ocean Hills to 77977. We hope you enjoy this message. Oh, I love being with this God family. I love it. Okay, I need to show you a family picture from the very recent days in the Lasea family. Can we put that up, Jeff? This is uh, Braden's wedding. Braden got married right before Thanksgiving. Braden and I got to walk his mom down the aisle. We were having fun, and then there's Braden and Joy. Mm, so beautiful. So fun. So that's what's been going on in our life. That's been the full-hearted uh, little Thanksgiving break was much more about uh, a daughter getting break than it was a Thanksgiving break. But one of the other things we often do during the Thanksgiving time is go see a movie. Anybody else see a movie during that time? Um, is anybody else here a chosen fanatic as Jamie and I are? Okay. For those for you holding out, trying to be the cool Christian, let me just help you out here. I am as pessimistic portrayal of Jesus on the screen I have ever seen. And when I watch The Chosen, my reaction is, that's the first Jesus like that I want to hang out with. Um, and so the way this has worked now, you used to watch on your phone or app or whatever else. And so we went, it's in the theater. I don't know if it still is, but that's how you watch the first two episodes of season three. And uh, why I mention this is because there's this great scene where Jesus is sending out his 12 disciples. And he says, guys, I'm going to send you out to go and uh, preach the gospel and heal the sick and uh, cast out demons in my name. And they just have this dumbstruck look in their eyes like, and like Judas has just gotten jumped into the gang. So he's, he's just joined. And this is uh, just after the episode before that is Jesus giving the Sermon on the Mount. And so Judas says, uh, I'm new here. I've only caught one sermon. And, uh, and the, one of the disciples goes, oh, don't worry, that was the best one. <laughs> and Jesus is like, what? <laughs> but this idea of the Sermon on the Mount being the best one, uh, there, there's some legitimacy there. This is like, there's some gravitas about this Sermon on the Mount that we're wrapping up this series this morning. This is it. Like Dallas Willard would say, this is Jesus' state of the, the universe address. This is a big deal. And I love that he's, he's commanding or he's sending his disciples out two by two to go out and proclaim the gospel. Does anybody else here see an issue with this? Uh, he hasn't died and he hasn't risen from the dead yet. So when you hear the word gospel, most likely you've, we have this reduced version of what the gospel is. It's just the work of Christ. And while that is not insignificant, and that is absolutely part and parcel of the gospel, the gospel includes a lot of things about Jesus. It includes his coming to us, the incarnation, which we're about to celebrate. It includes his life and teachings. And that's what he was sending them out to proclaim. That the Messiah had come. That the kingdom was breaking in. 
And let us tell you some things about what the Messiah is saying about how life works. And, and it freaks them out that they're going to have authority to go out and share this. But really, it's quite simple. It's this message about Jesus. And so this is how Jesus ends his state of the universe address. Now, remember, this message, it, it's not parceled out. I know a lot of times sometimes we'll just hear the Beatitudes or we'll just hear a part of Matthew 6 or whatever else. But this is his summary statement. I have my own in my sermon. Jesus has his summary statement to his, this message. He's just given this, Matthew 5, 6, 7, and he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the wise person who builds their house on the rock. And it says, the rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Likewise, all y'all, therefore, whoever hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice is like the foolish person who built their house on the sand. And then he used the same words to describe the same storm. The rains came, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against the house, and great was its destruction because it had been built on the sand. When Jesus, that's it, that's his that's his statement. That's the end of his sermon. And it says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. We'll come back to that. All right, so in, in, uh, when I was in fifth grade, we moved to this house on this dirt road in Aptos. It's up by Santa Cruz. And there were maybe five families that lived on this road. And the rest of the houses, it was, there were cabins, vacation cabins. So it was awesome. I spent my whole childhood imagining I was a Giants pitcher pitching against someone's garage. They never knew where that damage came from. Um, <laughs> but uh, we're down in the woods and we lived like on this house uh, over this cliff. And we built a deck out over the cliff. And we put a chicken pen down here. And I used to take my sister's cat and swing it down to the chickens, pick it back up. Never told her about that. Um, and and we, there's this gentle creek that was the bend right there. And I just spent my whole, like, childhood just stomping up and down that creek. It was like stand by me. I mean, I was just like leeches, you know, the whole thing, marching up there, fishing, whatever, just, just going off in the woods. And that creek became a river every time it would really rain. And I remember we had this cinder block retaining wall. And the first winter where it really, really rained, the retaining wall broke, cracked, broke. So I thought, man, we got to build a big wall. So I remember helping and, you know, doing some of the clearing and getting ready for the contractors to come and build like a double cinder block, real retaining wall. Well, the next winter, same thing. Huge Santa Cruz rains. That creek became a river, eroded, ate away, the, and that wall got destroyed. Then we built the mother of all retaining walls. 
This thing had steel I-beams that went vertically down, huge wooden beams that went sideways, steel cables into the foundation of the house. And then 1982, El Nino hit Santa Cruz. And if you've lived through the debris flows in this town, go Google sometimes, 1982, Santa Cruz, El Nino. You'll see very similar. We lost 22 people in the storms and uh, my stepdad and I were almost two of them. We, uh, we got the idea that, holy cow, this creek has become a river. It's eating the, and we're going to lose the mother of all retaining walls and therefore the house. And so we did the most sensible thing you could do. We went down the stairs to release the chickens because my folks were hippies and you got to save the chickens. So we went down to release the chickens and I step onto the platform to open the gate. And my stepdad, who's a very mild-mannered person, never heard him yell, screams, get out. And we run up the steps and get to the top and look down, and the whole hillside went into the river downstream. And if you've never seen a real mudslide, it is terrifying. I used to share the story, and it was always humorous the way I did it. And then we had the debris flows here, and I remembered how terrifying it was. It was terrifying. We got in the car. We got off our dirt row. We tried to go up to my friend Mike's house. There's a huge mudslide. We had to turn around. We got out the other way. Later, there was a mudslide there that took that road out. I lived for three months with some friends. My sister lived with some friends. My folks lived with some friends. That was a very discombobulating junior year of high school. And this is what Jesus is saying at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. The point is clear. Where you build determines the viability of what you build. He's talking not about houses. He's talking about our lives. What you build determines whether or not what you build will stand. It's absolutely vital that we understand this passage isn't floating and disconnected and just off on its own. It's right after he's preached a three-chapter masterpiece of the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, if you want to build a life that will stand the storms of this life, take these words of mine that I'm telling you about how life works and put them into practice. Live them. If you hear his words and put them into practice, your life is going to be built on the right stuff, on the right foundation. So when the rains come, when the waters rise, when the wind blows and beats against your life, it will stand. I've been haunted by two words in my life. Two times someone has said something and it has haunted me in, in a good way, not a creepy way. The first one was, uh, was I was soon after out of Westmont and I was corresponding via mail letters uh, back and forth to one of my religious studies professors. And I was telling him about the work that I was doing in Young Life, sharing the gospel with young people who had never heard it before. And he writes back to me, and by the way, college students, this is paper and pen, used to put that in an envelope and then they would take it from wherever you put it all the way to someone else's house far away. It's crazy. And... Um, and he's, he wrote me a letter and he said, what gospel are you proclaiming? And he wasn't like hitting me in the forehead. He, it, was just, it was a dialogue. 
That's been one of the things that has haunted me my whole life. What gospel am I proclaiming? What good news am I proclaiming? Probably the same question those disciples were asking themselves. What good news are we proclaiming? I have a, a, an 1800s farm oxen yoke in my office that hangs there as a visual reminder to me. What yoke of teaching, what gospel are you proclaiming? It's been a good haunting thought for me to try to stay close to Jesus. What does Jesus say is the good news? I want to make sure that that's what I'm saying. The second thing that has haunted me is at some point I was reading this passage of Scripture and I came upon this phrase and it just stuck. The person who hears these words of mine. And I thought to myself, do I know the words of Jesus do I know the teachings of Jesus? It's really interesting when I often ask some of my students in a class, hey, tell me, let's, let's talk about your favorite teachings of Jesus. I'm going to tell you the response is underwhelming at the amount of things that come out. And I'd love to say that it's different with other crowds, but it's underwhelming, I think, sometimes. Too often in bodies of believers where we say, oh, this, I love this part, and I love when he says this, and boy, when he says this, it's changed my life, and that's been really challenging. I don't want to believe him, but then we, we should be people where we go, man, lots of teachings. Do we know the teachings of Jesus? I want to haunt you with that question this morning. I want to bug you with it. I hope it gets in your saddle a little and just haunts you with, do I know the teachings of Jesus? Because what Jesus is saying is that if I hear him, and put him on my life, I will actually live a life that thrives through any season. So the question, do I know what he says? Do I, do I know his greatest topic? It's the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. It shows up over 162 times in the Gospels. If there were a quiz right now, what would I say about the kingdom of God? See, I want to haunt you. I want to bug you. What does Jesus say about the kingdom of God? I think followers of Jesus should know a few things about the kingdom. Do we know his second greatest topic? Wealth and possessions. That's surprising. Jesus, the author of life, must know something about our hearts and the propensity and the gravitational pull of our hearts toward wealth and possessions and, and how that can go well and how that can be used for the kingdom and how that can be misordered, disordered affection. He must know something about that. What does he say about wealth and possessions? You know, he talks about using your wealth and possessions to gain friends. That's Jesus. You ever done it? That's why sometimes I buy. This round's on me, guys. I'm just trying to get friends. <laughs> Following Jesus. What does he say about relationships? That's a major component of the human life. What does Jesus say about relationships? What does he say about justice? Is it a side dish to the gospel? Or is it part of the gospel? Here's a clue. Read Matthew 25. It's a big, big parable story he gives. What does he say about imprisoned people? In the country we live in, there's over 2 million people in prison. Jesus says some stuff about people in prison. We should... Maybe think about it. What does he say about this, the community of faith? 
the church, our God family. What does he say about this? How does he pray for us? What does he pray for us? Go read John 17 sometime soon. It's really interesting what he prays for us. What does he say about the Sabbath? Jesus has some things to say about it. What does he say about forgiveness and reconciliation? It's potent. Do you know that most of the teaching in the New Testament, I think it's like 70% if my math is anywhere close, on forgiveness is horizontal. (laughs) Most of the New Testament isn't teaching us about God's forgiveness of us. It's clear. It's in there. It's bold. But most of it, he's teaching his people how to become people of forgiveness and reconciliation. I sat with a student this week who um, got sideways with uh, one of her best friends. And in the conversation, I said, hey, do you think before you go home for Christmas, you could pursue a conversation with her to get together again, to reconcile? And she's like, And we talked about this. And it's like, you know, because just what Jesus is saying, and I think he's right. I think how he says to do relationships is good. And I've sat with people in their 60s and 70s. This guy screwed me in a business deal. Well, do you think, do you think you, that you should pursue that relationship? It's, you've been friends for 30 years. I don't know. It was a lot of money. I know. I don't doubt that. But Jesus has something to say about our friendships. And it's not all that, it's not a heavy yoke of you're not doing it, you're not doing it right, you're not doing enough. It's this is the way to live. If you want to really live, follow me, follow me. It's a way to live. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise person who built their house on the rock. Well, you have to, hear the words, know the words of Jesus. And so that's step one. How do you do that? And I would encourage you, every way you can, privately, I love how, and I've seen it in their home, John and Natalie have their God chairs, you know, where they sit in the mornings and read scripture privately, communally. In our church, we also believe that you're supposed to read it corporately, in discussion with other believers, and not just Santa Barbara believers, but believers around the world, in community, and and believers not just who only know this generation, but believers in the millennia of the church. How do we read the scripture? How do we understand? We're not the first one to ask questions about life. And how do we do them? We read them humbly, but we read them as a disciple, as someone who's seeking instruction toward action. Like, how do I live this way? How does this work? In Ezekiel, he prophesied, they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. We don't want to be those people. Pretty much you never want to be one of the people that the prophets are talking about. That's just, (laughs) you never want to be identified there. Dallas Willard said this, if he had only one spiritual discipline, it would be scripture memory. Scripture memory. Because there's something about getting it on your heart and in your mind that it'll it'll produce fruit. It'll, It'll come out when you need it. And I, I'm terrible at scripture memory. I have the memory of a, I don't know, a chipmunk. Do they have bad memories? I, I don't know. Bad memory. I, 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 it doesn't work very well, but the, the working on it, there's something there for me. 
One time I was trying to memorize the whole Sermon on the Mount. And so I had this one of those old little tape recorders, this before iPhones, and I had read the whole thing to myself so that I could just listen to it all the time in the car or whatever. And I had this one day of solitude out at Rancho San Marcos, a golf course, may she rest in peace, that used to be my favorite. And I was golfing alone, had never done that before. And in between holes, I'm listening to the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm just communing with God and nature. And then I go down after the bear's back down this steep hill and hit a speed bump. And the tape recorder goes out, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. And bam, I run over it. And I go from memorizing scripture to swearing. There's no gap in time. And then I just start laughing. And I'm like, God has got to have a sense of humor about me. Like, he's got to go, buddy, I know you're trying, but wow, phenomenal. But here's the prophetic word. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house. If I was going to title this sermon, I would title it, You Are Going to Need a Rock. This prophetic word is dependable. Whatever you build your life on, you will experience storms. Following Jesus does not mean that you do not have storms. I'm really sorry to break it to you. That's not been my experience, that loving Jesus means less storms. If you're mature in years, can I get an amen? Amen. Yeah. Both houses in this parable get hit hard. One stands, one doesn't. Whether or not you've built your life on Christ or not, the storms are coming. I love that gospel moment when Jesus is with his disciples and they're in the water and they, professional fishermen included, think they're going to die. And they scream, Lord, help dying. And he gets up and does the, and and they're like, whoa. The point of that story is not that Jesus takes all your storms away. The point of the story is the question they asked, who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. Who's in the boat with me in my storms is the question. Not whether or not all the storms are going to go away. I've, I've been in some storms and I've watched some storms. I've been with our sister, my sister-in-law, who uh, in, a, in a marriage with a, a God-loving man who struggled with bipolar and ends up uh, as a pastor, and he ends up taking his own life. And I've watched her through that storm anchor in Jesus and make it through and thrive instead of abandoning God and saying, where are you, where were you? She wrestled. It was hard. But I watched what a foundation looks like in a real storm. We had a neighbor when we were young and married, and she had lost her husband in a tragic auto accident. Just freak accident. Mattress comes off a car in front of him. And I asked, I said, Betty, what did you, how did you do that with your faith? And she said, Jesus was with me, with me when I most needed him to be. We've been with friends through their their daughter's death in the prime of her life, an incurable lung disease. And we've seen them struggle, question, wrestle, but hold on and thrive on the other side of what is our worst nightmare, to lose our kids. We've been with people who struggle and have want a spouse and have, it's yet to come. And we've had 
plenty of storms. And sadly, sometimes the storms get progressive. You just make it through that one, you think, wow, that one almost wiped me out. And all it did really was prepare you for the next one, which was bigger. That was not good news. And this is where I think James must have been a very old man when he said, greet these trials, these storms, as friends. You do not write that when you're 20. This is a guy who has been through some storms. And he says, as I look back, what it's built is endurance and character and faith. It builds the very thing that you want in your life. Greet them as friends. It's where Paul can kind of be a little cavalier and say, hey, death, where is your sting? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, he's not glib about death. When Christians are not glib about death, it's the last enemy that God's going to vanquish. But we know that even in death, our worst case scenario, we're with Christ. That's faith. When we were turning 40, uh, we were at Dr. Winner's house. Uh, he was the president of Westmont for 25 years, and he'd become a mentor to us. And we were asking him, hey, tell us something about the next season of life. And uh, David Winner said, didn't even pause. He said, prepare yourself for loss. Buzzkill. <laughs> <laughs> prepare yourself for loss. Now, this is by, he, by this time, he'd already lost his sight and was still leading organizations. He's just a marvelous man. But, you know, that's, that's a pretty faithful word. So this is where I want to say you're going to need a rock. You're going to need a rock when the rains come down in life, when challenges, problems, even attacks come and literally rain on you. It's going to strengthen you. It's going to build you. But where else are you going to go? Jesus, who, who else has the words of life? We can give up our faith and be lost at sea or we can build it on this faith that says, I have Christ in this life and I have Christ after this life. And I'm going to listen to what he said. I'm going to remember his promises. I'm going to build my life here and anchor in this when this rain's coming. You're going to need a rock. You're going to need a rock when the waters rise. When you're over your head. When you feel like you're sinking. You're drowning. You feel helpless. When you are very aware, like those disciples were, that you are in need of rescue, you're going to need a rock. I think of those hurricane flood victims when, you know, they decide to stay in their house even though they know the hurricane's coming. And then it gets bad and they're like, they, okay, let's get some of the possessions ready to go. And then they realize, oh gosh, we can't even go. And then they start going to the second story of the house. And pretty soon they're punching a roof, a hole in the roof to get up on the roof. And they're spelling out SOS on their ceiling or on the roof. And they're looking for a rescue. That's going to happen in life sometimes. And the waters are going to rise and you're going to need a rock. And the rock is listening to Jesus' words and putting them in practice. will save you when you think you're drowning. You're going to need a rock when the wind blows, when forces make everything you're trying to do difficult, when you feel opposed when you're aware that you are in a battle, we're not always aware of that. Sometimes we're in Santa Barbara. And then there's days where you go, I am in a battle. I'm in a battle. You're going to need a rock. 
The wind is going to beat against you. You're going to need a rock. So what will we do? Will we hear? Will we study? Will we be discipled? Will we be shaped and formed by the words of Jesus? Will we put them into practice? You know, it's, it's, it's stuff like things we all experience, but we're experiencing like this right now, like anxiety. I wrestle with anxiety. I realize now, looking back at my whole life, that I've always wrestled with anxiety. We just didn't know that word back then. Now, you can go, okay, someone's got anxiety. What do you do? I work with a population that has a lot of anxiety. What do you do? Uh, try uh, some mindfulness meditation. How about some, you know, goat yoga, uh, essential oil, you know. Do we ever think, and I'm not saying anything that's bad. I love goats. <laughs> but do we ever pause to say, what does Jesus say about anxiety? Maybe there's something we can do there. For me, it's been listening to him and his command to not be anxious and then looking at Paul, right? Don't be anxious. Fix your mind on what's good and beautiful and faithful. That's been life-giving to me. But here's the promise. The rock's going to hold you. It says, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. God has you. Are you anxious? God has you. Are you over your head right now? Desperately? God has you. He's not going to quiz you for the 162 references on the kingdom of God. He's going to take the mustard seed pebble-sized faith that we have, our attempt to put it into action, and he's going to build a bedrock of faith. He's the rock. That's the good news. He's the foundation, not your faith. Isn't that good news? Thank God. He's the rock. He's the foundation, not our faith. David proclaimed in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. And I think the rest of that psalm is all commentary on that line. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Even in the shadow of death. Right? The circumstances don't determine whether or not the house stands. The foundation does. The storms don't identify you. They reveal you. They reveal your foundation. Now, the parable kind of ends on a downer. Great was its crash. And it, but it's a warning. It's a warning that life is real stakes, right? We've seen marriages crash, businesses crash, ministries crash, families crash, friendship, friendships crash, because hearing the words of Jesus and putting them in practice didn't get done. So it's a, it's a, it's a warning. But it also ends with this review. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd was amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not like their teachers of the law. Their teachers of the law were like constantly playing trivial pursuit, quoting other rabbis and sort of seeing who had the best argument with each other. And Jesus says, hey, you've heard this, but I say to you. And he talks about his words. The one who's inviting us to trust him enough to follow him, to put his words into action, he has authority. He knows how life works. He made you and me. He understands the stuff we live in. And he 
and his words actually are the way through Jesus, the one who was there at the beginning. He has authority over evil itself. We sang it earlier, over chaos. He has eternal authority. Creation obeys him. The question is, will we? Will we hear his words and put them into practice? Will we, this is what spiritual formation is. Will we be formed by Jesus? That's the question. Here's the irony, is that this sermon that ends with whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice immediately gets written off by theologians and practical people who say this is utopian. Uh, he doesn't understand the complexities of life. I can't possibly forgive that guy or I can't, can't really do that in this situation. He gets... This message gets marginalized. Oh, the Beatitudes are not really, you know, by poor he means, no, no, no. He's proclaiming really good news to people. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise person who built their house on the rock. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we often think we know better than you do or too timid to act as we know how we, that we ought. We confess that on our own, this is too much for us to consider. We have feet of clay. We like Netflix and lattes too much. We're overly concerned with what others think of us. But we have this hope in these earthen vessels. We hope in you. You have not left us alone. You put your spirit in us to empower us, to guide us, and to encourage us. So while we confess our shortcomings, we also proclaim your being the Lord of our lives. You are our Lord. We love you, Jesus. Empower us to trust you to follow you. Amen. Thank you. I feel like God just answered my prayer. Man, God spoke powerfully. Thank you so much, Scott. Jesus is the rock. I guess the question for every one of us is, will we let him be our rock? And that's for everyone in, in this auditorium this morning. That's the question you are invited to respond to, not just to hear the word, but now respond to it. And on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he was with those same disciples. And we have here on the front of the stage, we have loaves of bread and cups of juice that represent the loaf of bread and the, the, the cup of wine that he shared with his disciples. And he broke the bread and he, he said to them, this is my body which is broken for you, take it and eat it in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, he took the cup after the supper and he said, this is my blood which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What that means is you are identifying with Christ. When you come and you rip off a little piece of the bread and dip it in the cup, you're saying, Jesus, I want you to be my rock. Jesus, 
in faith, I'm saying, my life feels flooded. My life is, is in a storm. My li- if it's not in one, it's going to be in one. Or you just came out of one. It's, it's one of the three. You either came out of one, you're in one, or you're going to be in one. And maybe this morning you're saying, I've never taken that step of faith to make Jesus the rock of your life. To say, I'm going to read his word, and, and it's the way to life. And I'm going to start following it from this day forward. And whoever wants to do that, you're invited to come to this table. We're going to sing, and when you feel led, you get up out of your chair as an act of faith, and you come down and you just rip off a piece of bread and dip it in the cup, and as you eat that bread that's dipped in the cup, maybe just your prayer can be, Jesus, I make you the rock of my life. That's your prayer of commitment this morning. That's what I'm going to do, and I invite you to do it. So let's stand and sing. And when you're ready to come, as an act of faith, come and invite Jesus to be your rock.